Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Larry Rule. As an adult survivor of childhood sexual abuse, he faces challenging questions every day. Is it truly possible to move through the shame he carries? Can he have a full life without depending on mind-numbing drugs and alcohol? And perhaps the most difficult question of all, how do you tell this story and who do you tell it to? His book, Breaking the Rules, is the answer to that question. It's a profoundly personal memoir that explores the impact of complex trauma on one man's life. My conversation with Larry was a real gift. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Larry Rule. Larry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Do you feel like you're one of the few people in writing a book is hard, and I think titling a book is harder. So your last name is Rule, <laughs> breaking the rules, and yet R U H L. How long was a process of titling? Writing is a long is a long time, sure, but titling you like when are you like, hey, I've got the right name for this book? Yeah, that was um, that happened. It happened in my therapist's office actually because I was. Uh, facing a dilemma about whether or not to pursue publishing the story and the book that I had written, I was still uncertain uh, about whether or not I was prepared to. And, and I was in a session with my therapist and we were talking about it. And she said, look, essentially by going forth, forth with this story, you are breaking all the rules. And I looked at her and she looked at me and I said, huh, and it stuck. And that's how it came. That's how it came to be. And I mean, one of the, it's interesting because you have these twin rules that seem to develop early on in your family story. Uh, one is the importance of family secrets and keeping them. And the other is there's nothing personal in this house. Right. right. As long as, and are those like two of these kind of rules that probably stifled and confined you for a lot of your childhood and adult life? Absolutely. I think that, you know, growing up um, and as a child of one of the main rules being, okay, there are no boundaries here. None. Um, that was really challenging. And the other one was, you know, don't tell, don't ever talk about what happens in our family outside of our house. And uh, they really stayed with me for a very long time. When you grow up in a home with no boundaries, is it sort of, is the challenge of navigating life outside the home, like you don't know where you end and the universe begins. That's exactly right. You know, I remember talking about um, a feeling like spending much of like my childhood of thinking that I was under um, like the gas from the dentist. Like I just sort of like wandered around and, and, you know, I'm sure now if I were to say what it was, it was dissociation, but that feeling of not, of not understanding, you know, what was, what, what made sense, what didn't. And, uh, yeah, it was it was challenging. Uh, you talk about uh, the, I mean, you you begin the book by talking about in a pretty you offer pretty detailed accounting of your own childhood and and this your mother who has this relationship this strange relationship with your father. I mean, they both seem like they're people that can never get enough love, right? And yet don't quite know how to love each other. That's exactly right. They've both brought tremendous childhood wounds. I mean, there's this harrowing story you tell where your mother wasn't allowed to have pets. I mean, she's kind of one of these moments where she's it seems like she's wounding you and yet pulling you close and saying that 
you're lucky you could have pets. I wasn't allowed to have pets. And there was this chicken in the yes. neighborhood that she befriended. And then her parents actually cooked the chicken and didn't tell her they cooked the chick, killed it and cooked it until she had eaten it. That's right. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, my parents, I mean, you just summed it up beautifully. I mean, they were, um, each of them, these people that could not get enough love or enough nurturing and, you know, that I was groomed to do that for them. But yes, at the same time, my mother, you know, my, my grandfather was, uh, was a police officer. Um, there was a diabolical side to that guy. And, um, yes, I mean, the, the poor story of the chicken and Josephine, and that's just one example of the kind of, the kind of things that she was surrounded by. And, uh, you know, she, let's just say that when she decided to have me, she came with stuff. There was stuff. Yeah. I mean, the first sentence of the book ah. is arresting. I mean, it, it, I'll just read it. You're a faggot, she hissed, spitting out the word, saliva forming at the corners of her cigarette-stained mouth. And you say, please don't do this. And this is because, right, at this point, you're at Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. She had gone through your things. She had found some things that made her think that you were gay. Yes. And then, I mean, immediately, it's interesting because that's where you quickly move on in the book to start going backwards right what like what was there significance when you're when you're telling your story what was it about that scene Mm. and those words that had to begin it you know i i remember you know writing so much of the of the middle of the book and understanding the the guts of what i needed to say um and in terms of where to begin, that was such a pivotal point for me with my mother, especially, um, you know, she, we grew up knowing to never keep secrets or never write letters or journals because my mom would always go through our rooms. And, um, and, you know, I made a, I made a mistake. I made a grave error and it felt like choosing that time, uh, when she outed me, uh, was really the best way to sort of, um, you know, lay the groundwork for everything that was to come after. In a way, selfishly, it almost made me easier. It made it easier on me to to say everything I had to if I got that out of the way first. And, you know, it was, you know, my mom, um, you know, was, it was tricky. And you talk about, you started off by asking about some of the, the rules that we had. You know, my mom read my journal. She made my father confront me about whether or not I was gay, but she insisted that he not tell me that she read my journal. And of course he did. So there you have it. I mean, that was so convoluted and so fraught with anxiety right from the beginning. Yeah. It, it seemed like what happens is everyone was sort of tiptoeing around your mom's dysfunction. The, okay. the kind of, I mean, she has substance issues with alcohol and also later you find out has some mental issue, health issues. And then your dad is, it one torn between protector and violator. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 it seems like also he, rather than let you, you and your sister be children, he, he, he deputizes you as surrogate adults that we're all dealing with her together. And we've all got to negotiate, you know, we're all in this together, Yes, but not, but not in a way parents and children should be in things together. It's, it's, it's it sounds emotionally incestuous. It was. And, and I think that in many ways, that was one of the hardest things 
um, when I started coming to terms with um, the gravity of my childhood, that was one of the hardest things to accept was the fact that I don't think that my dad ever saw me or my sister as his children. I think he only viewed us as equals. And, you know, I mean, there were some, there were some, obviously you read the book, there were some very difficult times. And even later, much later, when I started to confront him on some things, I mean, even in my 30s, his email back to me, the way he addressed me, he made it very clear that he did not see me as a child. He, you know, we were in it together. We all had to deal with my mother is what he said. And, um, you know, that's, that was tough. Yeah. I mean, it's, I have heard somewhere that says, you know, like part of like emotional health is, is, is like befriending your adult parents and then befriending you in, in the sense that when you grow up, you think your parents aren't really people. And you shouldn't like they're 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 meant to be these godlike figures that can do anything and protect you. And and likewise, they they don't see you as people in the normal sense that you're you're fragile to be protected to be you know like there's this sure it, it sounds like that barrier like came down way too fast. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> it did. You know, I, I remember the first time thinking I, I don't know maybe I was sixteen or seventeen, but I thought you know my mother is my child. I have a child, and. um and that was always the role. I mean, really, I'm, it's, um, you know, I think back on some of it and I, I can find enough, um, in there to sort of have a laugh about it, but boy, it was, it was unpleasant. Yeah. You, you there's a, a section in the book early on where you say that your mom always reassured you that your relationship was very special. And even if all else failed, that you'd still have each other. Yes. You say that she told me I was the only one who knew how to make her feel loved. And for that, she would stay devoted to me. Where was that sentiment out? My father's main objective was to please my mother to maintain peace. He needed more love than anyone could possibly give. And he carried himself as a man burdened by rejection. Mm. What did the burden look like when, when you see a man carrying himself that way? What, is that, what does that look like? Yeah, my dad was, um, was one of these guys that always appeared crestfallen, always um, sad and, and sort of down and, um, and, you know, a hug would never be enough. The hug had to, had to last longer. It had to be come closer. It had to be near me. Um, and when my mother berated him or, or physically, um, abused him, um, it very much became, look what, look how she treats me. Look how, look how my life is. I need you. I need you. I need your love. I need you to make me feel better. And that's, that was the, you know, that was the basis of, of much of our relationship. And that relationship became one that was not just emotionally incestuous, but physically incestuous and abusive. Yes. And do you, do you think that was the kind of natural segue? I mean, it just, it, it, there was some strange, like he became, you, as a child, you became this emotional surrogate for him. So this is just the next step for that for him. Yeah, I think that that I think it's complicated. I think that there are many facets of what allowed that particular the sexual abuse part, that behavior to manifest. And again, I think it goes back to the fact that I I don't think that my father ever saw me as a child. Um and you know, that's it's been very hard for me to come to terms with and to accept um how that happened, why it happened, um understanding um that he too may have been abused at some point. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, the, 
the father son bond, the closeness, the, the, all of those, those crossing boundaries that never should have been crossed. You know, they, they changed and shifted over the years. And as, as I got older, they shifted again. Um, but the most prevalent, um, you know, sexual abuse period was when I was very young, which is, uh, you know, very hard to comprehend. Yeah. You tell these just in vivid detail. I mean, I can't imagine how painful it was to write this book. It, as you tell yes. these detailed stories of when, of him climbing in your bed and always with the finger over his, his index finger kind of over his lips with the shushing sound. Like, yes. this is just for us. That's right. And doing sexual things. And you talk about your own bloodied underwear or him calling you into the bathroom. Uh, yes. To, to, under the cover of, oh, dad needed more soap or, Right. Or shaving cream or something, and and you're and he would objectify you sexually and these things. Yes. And there, I mean, this is, I mean, at what point? Uh, I'm wondering how how long those memories were suppressed because you talk mm-hmm. about the pain of suppressing that stuff, and and how did they become clearer so that you could recall them? I mean, because you recall yeah. them in vivid detail. Yes, that's such a that is that is like a great amazing question. Um, I, um, I did, I suppressed uh, much of my memory until my early thirties, uh, because my parents remained in my life. Um, and the, the whole idea of caring for them and nurturing continued. And as I got older, the man, the demands grew higher and, um, and became, they felt more like a matter of life or death. Like I had to do more to make sure that I kept them in my good graces. Yeah, you talk the, about in the book yes. as you when you're in New York and going when, when they would want you to visit and, and the just the emotional yes. weight of the of of a, of a family visit yes. and just getting on the train and like oh, the yeah. whole the process. I would, I would walk into their house and my father would give me a hug and sit down and and basically start to pout like a child. And when I would ask him what was wrong, he would say, "You're going to leave." And I said, "I'm not leaving until tomorrow." And he said, "Well, that's too soon." And it was this constant thing. Um, but, you know, in terms of, of memory and, you know, there were, I included in the book, the things that always remain so clear to me. And when my memory did start to become uh, more clear and I was having some flashbacks and was getting tripped up and triggered, um, you know, I, I started really paying attention to that as painful as it was. The other thing that was so interesting is that somehow in my family, I became the one to have all of our family photos, all of them from generations, including my own childhood. And it took me a long time to sit down and look through those photographs. But when I did, the clarity and the the body response that I had just from looking at some photographs and, and remembering, um, it really helped as a guide to help me say what I had to say. And this is what we know, too, about trauma, right? I mean, the, some of the breakthroughs in that field, that these things are not just, I mean, they are psychological, but they're also there are memories in your central nervous system and and learning where the trauma is learning the feeling of those feelings, part of dealing with the post-traumatic stress issues. Yeah. And I would say that, unfortunately, that's, um, that's definitely something that um, doesn't go away. At least it hasn't for me yet. There are still uh, moments of body response, um, and uh where in your body do you, do you feel yeah, sure. can you t- say where how it feels like what where is it start 
Yeah. At the risk of um, saying too much, I'll give you an example. You know, I was um, a couple years ago, I went to the movies in Manhattan. I was alone and, um, and I went to the men's room. And just as I walked in the door, the theater was dead. There were, there were maybe a handful of people. I, I, out of the blue, after thinking I'd done, you know, it come such a long way. I had a real moment of panic in the men's room. I felt like I was a target. Um, and fear really crept in and it's right in my gut. It's always in my, in my low abdomen. And, um, and it's, you know, it's a version of panic that starts to rise up a little bit. Um, and that's usually where it hits me. It's usually in my chest or in my lower abdomen is when I really know that, uh, I could be in trouble. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And what, what do you do when you, or, it's interesting because your book narrates a long journey of dealing with this yes but before therapy when you felt that what did you do oh well yikes um well a number of things i i forced myself to overwork um i pushed my way through it in any way that i could um certainly by drinking um i would numb out um but anything to not feel Anything that I could find to not feel. Sometimes that would mean, you know, staying up for 24 hours, you know, either in the kitchen or obsessively focusing on the garden, some activity to just, um, to say, okay, that this isn't happening. Even when I had like some of my earliest flashbacks before I really started dealing with um, what I knew to be true about my childhood, anything that I could do to push those down, I would do. And, uh, there were some very, very dark moments as it started to catch up with me that were painful and, um, you know, and, and really challenging to navigate. And when you got to a place where you could untangle some of this, how did it, how did it change? What were you able mm. to just sit through this? Cause it, it sounds like you probably didn't even know what those feelings in your abdomen and chest were, or, I mean, at a, at a yeah. gut level, you know, they're bad. You don't want to feel them, but right. how, how do you sit with them now? Well, now, you know, it's different. I, you know what, when I, before I started therapy, I developed a really awful panic attack disorder and I had some of my worst panic attacks while driving. Um, and I really thought I was crazy. And once I in the book where you're, sure. I think driving yes. up north of New York city, I think, right. And yes. you're, you're almost, the car's almost slowed to a stop and you're barely moving and you're in the other lane Yes, and you had no idea how you got there. No. And in that, in that case, that's actually a road not far from where I live, you know, it was a sort of a mountainous road. And, and by moving into the opposite lane, I was hugging myself closer to the, to the mountain. So I felt safer. Um, and it sounds so funny to say, I felt safer in the opposite lane with oncoming traffic, but those were the, when, when those started to happen more frequently, I, I knew that something else was going on that I was really, I was putting myself in some danger. And, um, I finally agreed to see a doctor for medication. And it was shortly after my panic attacks started to get under control that my memory really started coming back sort of furiously and, and quickly. So it's, you know, as we hear in, in um, so much treatment talk, you know, my panic attacks sort of protected me in some ways. It was my body's response of, of keeping some things down. And yeah. now, and you asked how I deal with it now. I mean, now if, if I have a, if I have a tough moment, you know, usually it involves some, you know, taking a moment to myself, some deep breathing, um, you know, reminding myself that I'm fine, that I'm safe, you know, all of those tools that we learn, um, to sort of get ourselves through any sort of panic. 
I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, Ben Crosby, John Schneider, Steve Lipless, and Charlotte Donlin. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. It's interesting because part of your story, too, involves your own sexual identity and this strange relationship and pull between your parents. And and you're coming of age at a time where people, it's probably not, I mean, coming out today still isn't easy, but but at least... It's it's a little more common. There are more resources. You're coming up in a time right where there are far fewer resources, right? And you've got to sort this out in the midst of sexual abuse, and yes. and just having parents that don't give you space to figure out who you are anyway. I mean, right? Do you ever think it's a miracle I, I ever learned how to give or receive love? Yes, I do, and and I've had I've had some moments where you know in the in the depths of my confusion and conflicts of my own sexuality of, you know, where do I land? How do I land? And certainly in my own relationship um, with David that, you know, it's a, it feels like it's a miracle that we're coming up on 20 years together. And, um, and it's been one of the most challenging things is to, is to just, you know, have a sense of safety as to how I identify and, and who I feel like that I'm meant to be. Yeah, you tell this story that when you're telling your parents about David and you're horrified, you know, what the reaction would be. And they, they were strangely accepting, but they said, your mom said, just don't tell your dad he's Jewish. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, you know, my mom had, um, you know, it was, it was after one of her, her earliest or her first most significant nervous breakdown. And I was, I remember just laughing at that and thinking, oh boy, you know, and um, certainly some, you know, the, there was some bias and racism in my family growing up. And um, I found it sort of interesting that that would be the one thing that, you know, that they would, my mother would say, and that it was the sort of concern about my father's reaction. I mean, forget that, as, you know, that it's a man that I'm choosing to be with. Just don't talk about the fact that he's Jewish. Yeah. And amidst some of that kind of, I, I mean, I'm a little familiar with the neighborhood you grew up in, and amidst in, in the time, like the sort of some of the 
obvious prejudice and racism and and just you know you're a curious person and and relative closeness of the culture i mean you talk about these drives up river road and fantasizing yes. in these mansion these mansions like uh, uh, you know in upper bucks county approaching new hope i'm thinking and, and that was a form of, of real escape for you it was it was. And, you know, it became, um, I remember I was late to get my driver's license. You know, I could have gotten it when I was 16. I waited till I was 18. And the second I had my own car, it was like this freedom and just being in the car alone, listening to the music way too loud, taking those drives was, was a real escape. It was a way out of that house, out of that misery. And, you know, you tell the story of this woman that you invite to this fundraiser <laughs> with you. And she works with you at Macy's, right? Yes. You're, you're home at the time. Uh, and you in Levitt in Levittown and you, she pulls up in this sports car, right? I mean, yes. she, she's kind of a woman <laughs> of mystery, right? Totally. Totally. And, and she takes you to this, you, or you take her to this charity event or something and you develop this strange relationship and you had been sorting through attraction to guys at the time too. And yet, it does seem like you have this relationship that's meaningful. I mean, it, 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 it seems like she she conjured up enough of your mother to be interesting, and yet some of the things that are not like your mother. Was there some strange maternal dynamic with her? That's so. That's really interesting. Um, you know, I think that. Um, well, you you summed it up. She was a total woman of mystery, and I still think back at that time of you know the same way. Um, but you know, I mean, it's, I think of, um, I think of how she dressed, how she presented herself. And in so many ways, you know, she was so, um, sort of, uh, out with her, with her feminine sexuality. And, you know, now that you say it, my, my mom was that way too. So, and yeah, never you talk about your mom before. dancing around sexually oh from your dad in front of Please. kids and yes. in ways that make and it's funny because throughout the book, you, yeah. you recount her musical choices and what she would choose to dance to and these, these sort of phases she would go through that you were all yes. sucked up totally. into with her, right? My sister and I, for many times used to refer to different phases, you know, disco or church, you know, it's sort of funny to combine those two, but they overlapped. Yeah, I remember um, a sentence in the book where you say, thank God, something like the light of disco gave way, yes. the light of the disco ball gave way to the light of Jesus. And you start right. going to this Lutheran church, which seemed like a decent time for a short season until your mom sabotaged it. Boy, did she ever. Yeah, it was a decent time. It was like the first time that I sort of felt like I had um, some safety and some family, um, you know. I'm very fortunate that my experience in the church was, um, was safe. Um, and, you know, we really, I really enjoyed it. We became, um, we were all involved. My mother was the assistant minister and I was the acolyte. I sang the whole, the whole thing. Um, but inevitably all things with my mother come to an end and she, um, she had a fight with the minister and we were forbidden to ever go back. And that was like done, done. Yeah. And you actually one day, Sometime after that whole relationship with that congregation was sabotaged, you found yourself playing church, right? Your mom said you guys yes. were going to play church and recreate, and you, and you talk about like reciting the creed and singing. And I mean, and and it seemed like for a moment you had recreated that which you'd missed. We did, and in many ways, it was kind of cruel, almost on my mother's um, 
the way she did it, um, thinking back on it. But yeah, I mean, I have to tell you, I can still be in a Lutheran church or be in church and I can still remember the Nicene Creed and, and the, some of those prayers. Um, and the, you know, we did it at home, um, once and, and that was it. And she, you know, sort of laughed and, uh, she was so, my mom was so done with the church. I mean, she was just as dedicated and committed as she was when she decided she was done. She was done. And that's how she's been with everything, including me, unfortunately. Um, or maybe fortunately, um, and her friends and relationships. Yeah. I mean, you, you have experienced a kind of forgiveness for your parents, right? <laughs> that yes. hasn't, hasn't included forgetting because how can one forget? I mean, that's just. Yeah, but, but, but is, is that, but they're still not as safe. They're, they're not safe for you now. <laughs> no, they are not. And, um, you know, I mean, you know, in our, in society and in the, you know, the, what we're taught, um, you know, we're often taught to stand by our family, families, and certainly our parents, no matter what. And, uh, my relationship with my parents came to an end, um, about 10 years ago. Um, my mom disowned me. I asked for space from my father uh, as I was sorting through things. And it became clear that, uh, that relationship needed to be over for me, for my safety, for my own, um, uh, peace of mind, my well being, And, um, and truthfully, that's one of the most powerful gifts that I've given myself was to work through the, the anguish that I felt and the guilt I felt for a very long time of feeling that I had abandoned them. Um, and to move on with my life. It's what really sort of paved the way for me to start to heal was to not have them in my life at all. That being said, I have found forgiveness, um, which I, you know, seemed incomprehensible early on, especially for my dad. Um, my mom, you know, I continue to work on uh, untangling my mother from me a little bit. <laughs> Your sister, you, I mean, you maintain a, 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 close relationship with her and and she's i mean you tell a powerful story of her coming to therapy with you yes right? i mean and she lives with them still right yes I mean, she's how, how does that how do you keep all those things oh sorted out yeah you know, that's that challenging it is it is very challenging um you know i have one niece that i'm i'm very close to um and i think what allowed my relationship with my sister to remain, uh, was the, our mutual dedication to my niece, um, who's now a young adult herself. Um, but you know, the, it has been challenging. It has been tricky and challenging and, um, it has, it has threatened to end my relationship with my sister. Uh, for whatever reason, our, our love, our respect for one another, we have continued. Um, and while we're not as close, um, uh, we certainly remain in each other's lives. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, she's still my big sister and I, you know, she's about all the family I have left. And, uh, you know, I feel, um, I feel a deep love for her. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, I'm wondering as you're sorting out your own just response to the abuse and how to heal from that and the trauma and also sorting out your own sexual identity. I mean, because your father was the sexual abuser and, and I mean, and, and then again, your, your mother with a sort of emotional incest. Sure. Drawing, I mean, how, did that, I mean, you do describe in the book some kind of second, a lot of second guessing around sexuality stuff or, or, or confusion. I mean, do, how, how did the, 
abuse from both parents play into you coming into your own and understanding your own sexual identity and you as as someone as a lover yeah boy i um i wish that i was speaking from a place where that was all settled and done and i and i could just speak back on it but it certainly remains something that i um that i continue to sort through and i i've got some work to do still i believe uh, but you know it felt i had been with david for um, almost 10 years when the, the, my worst unraveling around my childhood started to happen. And it, it really felt like a, like a sick joke that I was, that I'm gay and that I was sexually abused by my father. Um, so you have all of this stuff turn up, like, how can I be a sexual being with, with a man, um, based on what I'm living with, what I remember, what happened to me. Um, yet at the same time, I, I know in my heart that I'm gay. But yet my experiences with women have also been so positive, my, especially my sexual relationships with women. And it was during sex with women that I always said, this, this is what normal is, you know, putting a judgment on it. So. Yeah. And you would even describe, okay, I'm on top. She's on the oh, bottom. Yeah. This is, yes. you know, I, I didn't necessarily like oral sex to perform right. it, but I could, if I drank enough, I could, you know, and these things yes. would work themselves out. Yes. And to have some of that, you know, have some of that turn on me to, to have been, um, you know, more sexually active with men. And then the things that I used to enjoy doing suddenly were not so enjoyable anymore. That, that's been tough. You know, that's been tough. And I, and I hear that from other survivors and it's conversations that we have. And I know that I'm not alone, but boy, it can really can make you feel a little crazy. Um, and, uh, can be very challenging. Um, so, you know, I mean, I remember saying to David about halfway through, I think that, um, I think I'm going to go back to, to dating women again or sleeping with women. You know, this is as we're together. And yeah, halfway uh, through, like five years into it? Like, um, like 10. Wow. Wow. 10 years into it. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Cause you're 20. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And I remember that's, saying, a bo- that's a bombshell. Yeah. And I, I said, you know, I don't, I don't want to be gay anymore as if it's a choice, but I, um, you know, I, I, you know, I continue to sort through it. I really do. And I find what works for me, you know, and I'm working on that. I'm fortunate that David and I have the, um, have the, uh, opportunity and have the, the things in place to, for me to be able to explore. Yeah. I mean, you must feel tremendous acceptance in that relationship because it sounds like the, the tremendous, the ability, the ability to say, even say something like that. Yes. Uh, which he could handle very much as a rejection sure. must, st- must stem from a deep abiding acceptance. Yeah, it is. And, you know, you know, it's so funny, you know, I've always struggled when, when people have said to me, you know, throughout my career or my life or whatever, when they've said, you know, you're so lucky, that's a tricky word for me because I've never, you know, in many areas, I, I haven't considered myself lucky. I will say that in terms of my relationship and David and finding him, I am indeed very lucky. Um, that it all happened, that it played out this way. I mean, his commitment to, to me and to deeper learning and to navigating this with me is so profound and has been, I mean, he literally, uh, has kept me from my own demise. And, and, you know, it's interesting because you talk about this relationship with Catherine in the book, who is it, who is a serious relationship you have with, with a woman. And when you break it off with her, your parents, they say, right, how could you do this? We loved her. <laughs> there's yes. no, there's no attunement to your own complexity. It's just like, wow, we had the daughter-in-law we wanted. Future right. daughter, like, 
And that, that feeds into exactly what you were bringing up or asking me about early on about how it was all about them. And it was this, you know, I was meant to nurture them. And by bringing Catherine into the picture, it was a deeper level of nurturing. You know, my father felt like he had a daughter-in-law and my mother had somebody else who really doted on her. Catherine understood what my mother was about. And she, you know, she got it from the beginning. And, um, and she too was very easygoing and, you know, it really messed with my mind. And Catherine and I were together for almost three years. And, uh, you know, the end of that relationship was incredibly painful for me. Yeah. I mean, you talk about like moving out, the movers are there and you're walking down the steps, you can hear her crying and wanting to hug her, but knowing you shouldn't. Right. I mean, when I was moving back into my apartment, she was the one that cleaned it to get it ready for me. I mean, she was, she was amazing. And, you know, what's so lovely is that, you know, she and I remain friends to this day, which is, which is incredible to me. And, and does she live in like proximity? I mean, you see her, you and David see her? We don't, we don't, it's, it's a, it's a friendship that, um, you know, it's a, it's a social media, have a conversation once or twice a year friendship. Um, but the, you know, it's there. That, do you, I, I'm interested. I mean, I wonder, it's part of the pain of, of childhood trauma like this, that like, I mean, it, if what it means to be a human, at least one thing, right, is to have a story, right? Like you're not mm-hmm. in the immediate present, right? Like, a, like right. you actually can look back on what's happened and look forward to what you hope happens and then orient the present. But I guess like your the, the past fuses with the present, right? You, you can't yes. you can't disentangle it. So you're constantly reliving it. So it's never really past mm-hmm. that you can have real feelings about because it's always invading into the now, which probably I would guess... it's like they say the past is prologue well the past swallows it also becomes like the the epilogue right because it's always swallowing up the future i mean is that part of the reason you needed to write the book in such vivid detail so that actually you could have a past you know yes yeah absolutely and i think that um you know i'm often asked if um if writing or it's assumed that writing the book must have been cathartic for me Right. Cathartic experience. And that was not the case. I mean, I hear it. I hear it in your questions and what you're asking me that you get that. And, uh, you know, the, the catharsis is happening now a little bit that it's finished, that it's actually going out, that people are reaching out to me. I would think, I would think at least on the front end, yeah, it would increase the acuity of the trauma. Yes. Yeah. For a while. It took a great, it took a great toll on me physically and emotionally to write it. Uh, more than I had anticipated. I mean, how could I ever imagine? Uh, my therapist was amazing at just reminding me during the process. She said, none of this that you're working on, none of this that you're writing will ever be as bad as to what actually happened to you as a child. And that kept me, that kept me grounded. That helped me to say, okay, I can, I can do this. Um, but I, when I started out, I did not, it was not my intention to say all that I've said. Um, it happened it really unfolded over a course of time. Um, but it has allowed me to say, okay, this is, this is my jumping off point. This, this story is now out there. Uh, I hope that it reaches the people that really need it and I can start to move on and distance myself a little bit more. Is it awkward writing something this vulnerable because people know not just you before they talk mm-hmm. with you, if they've read it, but they know some deep, vulnerable tragic mm. fraught with all kind of emotional stuff i mean how mm-hmm. like is it how how are how how is interacting with people mm. who know the story before you meet them 
here's what I can say to that is um, that um, in my in my experience of meeting other survivors and having conversations and and you know doing some outreach before I decided to write this book, I knew that I that if the, if I was going to be effective in writing this story, that I had to say the most shameful bits, the most shameful pieces had to come out because that's what people relate to. You know, and even if it's one piece or a fragment, and even if somebody can't say it to me, if they know it in their heart, if it makes them feel for a second, okay, um, you know, it happened to him too. He's He has reacted and he has done this as a result of what happened to him. So, you know, in terms of, in terms of that, I felt like I had to say what I've said. And in terms of people like knowing me or make it awkward, I don't know. I haven't experienced that yet. I feel very grounded in, in what I've said. Uh, the first few times that I sent the book out in the beginning, I had, I did have deep moments of panic where I thought, Oh my God, what have I done? Um, but the responses that have come back have really helped carry me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran clergyman in World War II who's part of the resistance against, but was jailed for being part of the plot to kill Hitler. He wrote this book, Ethics, I think from the prison camp, but he says that Guilt is feeling bad about something we've done, and shame is feeling bad about who we are. Yes. Does that distinction ring true for you? It does. It does. And, you know, you know, I, I realized that the guilt that I was carrying um, was not mine. You know, the, the guilt, when I first ended my relationship with my parents, you know, I, I was terrified. I felt guilty that my father was suffering as a result of me saying, I can't, I can't have a relationship with you anymore. Um, and the whole idea, you know, he is, he had threatened us since we were little kids about killing himself, you know, and would you miss me if I was gone, if I was no longer in your lives. And so for the first six months that I ended my relationship, I, that's what I worried about. Shame, shame is a deadly thing. It, it really, it really works its way into every fiber of your being. And it's very, very hard to just start to shed it. Yeah, what does Brene Brown say? That shame uh, is this awful thing that no one wants to talk about. And yet, the less you talk about it, the more of it you have. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, some of the things that I did, the ways that I acted out, um, you know, certainly around my alcoholism, um, you know, I felt, I felt incredibly shameful about. And, um, and you know, I mean, when you, when you share your story honestly and you, you say what you have to, there's somebody else in the room or somebody else out there is going to say me too. What, what do you find joy in now? Mm, well, I love to be in the kitchen. Um, love to be in the kitchen. And I still, you know, I still, um, I still love creating spaces. You know, it's one of the things that um, I did as a kid, even filling my bedroom with antiques, you know, and creating an atmosphere. I still do that to, to this day. I'm, you know, going to be 46 years old this year and I still have a deep passion for interiors and, and um, creating atmospheres and rooms. I think part of that stems from always craving a private space um, and wanting to surround myself by by beauty. Um, but those are two things that really stick out. I love to entertain. Yeah. You chose to end the book with a story of Don Price. Yes. Who was someone who was a victim of abuse and and, and killed his father. Yes. And, and, why and, and you 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 had an interaction with this man? I did. 
can you say can you just tell that story and why yeah I, why, um, why you needed to meet him and why sure. you chose to end the book there yes i um i was sent a text when the news story first broke out by a friend that knew my story and said how can we how can we help this man and um and I think what he was, he meant at the time of sending me the text was if, if there's a legal defense fund, if there's something that, that my friend could do to help to let him know. Um, and when I read the story, uh, it rang so true to my own experience, not only having been sexually abused by my father as he was, um, but the way that he killed his father also. And I felt, I felt that I needed to see him, uh, to see him face to face almost almost at one aspect was to, was to see what I chose not to do. And, um, and when I met with him, uh, it was a very moving experience. You know, it was, he's a tough guy and, um, and I wanted him to know that he wasn't alone and he very much appreciated it. Um, he, he and I shed some tears. Um, and it was important to me, I think, you know, at the time and subsequently to really understand that we all have choices and, and that I chose a path of healing and not revenge. And I think that was the most profound part of what I got out of the experience of seeing him. Um, he will spend the rest of his life in, in prison, um, or most of the rest of his life. And as painful as it's been, I chose a different direction and, um, and I'm free. Yeah. Cause a lot of your story is getting out of the prison you were in. Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> You do work with your. You serve on the board with yes. a group called Taking Back Ourselves. Yes, and and you're a registered speaker with Rain, which is Rape Abuse Incest National Network. Is there is there ever as you're sort of unbinding your own wounds as, as a kind of wounded healer? Do you ever worry about getting reduced to the total of your wounds or experience i mean is there are there times when uh you, you'd like some anonymity from the story or mm. or, or, or is it or, or do you find that it's more liberating to just press into it i think a combination of of all of that quite honestly um you know i just as um you know in in terms of putting myself out there and what I've heard, I have heard some of the most devastating stories from men and women of what has happened to them. Um, by sharing my own story, sometimes people, um, you just go ahead and, and share their experience with me. And, and that's been, that can be incredibly painful. I can hear it. I can listen to them. I can hold it with them, but it'll, it'll definitely take a toll on me in a day or so. And I'll have to really exercise some self-care to, to process what I heard. Um, but, but no, I mean, I, if there's, if there's ever an opportunity for me to share my story, to listen to someone else and to, to share our experience of how we function, how we get through life, how we face a new day, how we face triggers, that's where the gold is for me. It's like in those conversations, I continue to learn and, you know, by willing to, by my willingness to say whatever I have to, I hope that I can offer that to other survivors too. Larry, thanks for spending some time with me and for writing this fantastic book, Breaking the Rules. And I hope lots of people read it because I think there's a lot of people walking around with lots of pain that could really connect with your story. Thank you so much for having me. It was an wow, honor. Pleasure was all mine. Thanks. It's great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. 
If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Larry for coming on the podcast. Please check out his book, Breaking the Rules. If you've experienced pain or know someone who has, it's the book for you. And thanks again to you for listening. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.